Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 162. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? Not too bad. Yourself? Uh, it's fine, I suppose. <laughs> it's as, as, as well as anyone or anything can be doing in, in this day and age. I feel like our intros are like a testament to the social contract because 90% of the time uh-huh. we're both like, yeah, we're, we're doing all right. And then like you look at what's been happening as we've recorded each episode, it's like, Plague, disaster, you know, massive social upheaval. Anyway, so, yeah, anyway, COVID sucks. It has forever, and you don't want to hear about it any more than we want to talk about it, so we will discuss it to a bare minimum, and instead talk about the actual honest-to-God Leafs game we got to enjoy. Yeah, for the first time in basically two weeks, um, we, we got a Leafs game where they faced... The corpse of the Ottawa Senators, otherwise known as just the regular Ottawa Senators. We were talking um, about that because the Sens were missing some people. Some players who would have helped. Shane Pinto would have helped. Uh, Colin White probably would have helped. Josh Norris would have helped. Nikita Zaitsev would have appeared. Um, all of these are players who would have played given the opportunity, so it's not like the Leafs absolutely clowned the best version of the Ottawa Senators, but the best version of the Ottawa Senators is still like a bad hockey team. Mm-hmm. So, mm, um, still, it was fun. We smoked them 6 nothing. Um, yeah. Lots of uh, secondary scoring, actually. Austin Matthews was held off the score sheet for a change. Yeah, as was Mint Marner. And it's, it's, I mean, it's quite rare, right, that you see a 6.9 Marner and Matthews don't really have anything to show for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were good, but yeah, just the pucks didn't go in, and instead there was... This was a very special teams-heavy game. Mm. It, it felt like two-thirds of the game was at even strength, and only one-third was at... Um, and, and Sorry, at, yeah, two-thirds of the game was, was even strength, and, and, and one-third of the game was, um, was special teams, which was obviously like quite a bit. I, I can look up the actual amount that were special teams, but like Ottawa took a lot of penalties. Some were like kind of ticky-tack, and like, you yeah. know, if, if those happened to the Leafs... Least Twitter is an outrage. It's like it takes so little to turn Least Twitter into like you know referee conspiracy theorists. You know, it's a one one crappy call on on Morgan Riley when he was about to get beat by a guy, and it's like, well, of course the refs call that penalty, but they don't call this similarly marginal penalty against Austin Matthews. Yeah, look, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There is no way in which the league is out to get the Toronto Maple Leafs in refereeing. I'm sorry. We do a good enough job of that ourselves. Yeah, I hate to say it, but the conspiracy is coming from inside the house on that one. The only thing I will say is that the Leafs, as a generally low penalty team, get fewer power plays in terms of makeup calls. I think that's real. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's just the even up instinct, and that does apply to the NHL as a whole. And you can say it's stupid, because it is, but nonetheless, that's kind of the world we all live in. So, yeah, I, yes. I don't think it's a ref conspiracy. Anyway, yeah, um, <laughs> the Sens probably and, had some and, stuff to complain about. Yeah, and looking it up now, it was uh, three quarters of the game was 5v5. So that's a okay. um, relatively lower percentage than you would expect most of the time. Yeah. Um, there was some shorthanded scoring, which is uh, yeah. a big factor in that. Um, Ilya Mikheyev... Mm-hmm scored on somebody you knew it was going to be a weird night once that happened and justin hall well i mean it's it started yeah it started off with a comp to justin hall shorthanded goal which is you know that i feel like that only happens against ottawa yeah like this is not 
exactly how you draw it up. These are two guys who score like maybe once a millennium. So the fact that they combine for a goal is almost unprecedented. But then Mikheyev got in on a break. And, you know, I don't know how many breakaways Ilya Mikheyev has had since he's joined the Toronto Maple Leafs. It feels like a billion. It feels like his shooting percentage on them is zero. And both of those numbers mm-hmm. are very slightly exaggerated, but not really by much. But he scored. And yeah. after that, you know, you knew it was going to be just a pretty special night. He scored again later on, too. Yes, he did. And it's, I don't know, it was one of those games where I, I feel like the, the 5v5 stats are actually, like, not, in, if you look at XG anyways, mm-hmm. they're not, like, insanely in favor of the Leafs, at least not by natural stat trick. But watching that game, it just, it felt like, there was nothing that Ottawa was doing. They generated so little. Mm-hmm. Like Right, and the Leafs just constantly had the puck, and occasionally Ottawa would get the puck and try a breakout, and they might get a shot or two based off that. But it was just complete territorial domination from the Leafs, which is good. It's obviously better than the alternative. Um, but, you know, as discussed, this is a weakened version of a weak team. So it's very much a case of the Leafs holding serve mm-hmm. as opposed to doing anything particularly special but of course it's you know that's all they could do right Right. and and after a two week or however long it is layoff um i think it was a similar layoff for both teams maybe slightly more for the leafs than for ottawa Mm -hmm. you know it's it's probably it was just good to see them get their their sea legs under them with a a productive uh performance yeah i think their next game is um it was supposed to be today but that against the hurricanes which would have been a very interesting test but that's postponed yeah and instead i think it's Wednesday against the Oilers. Tentatively. I mean, everything yes. is very much in flux. And so, yeah, yeah well, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I mean, in light of this being the only game that we've had the chance to talk about, we're probably going to look at it a little bit more closely than we usually do, at least a couple of plays. Um, the big line, the top line takeaway is when you're a team that has pretensions to contending and you play a underpowered version of the Ottawa Senators, you have to dismiss them. And the Leafs did. So, good on them for that. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a really fun goal that we were going to talk about. Oh, yeah. So, the um, first Nylander goal. Uh, so, this is always a little bit awkward to do in podcast form because, you know, if you're listening, you can't see us and we're not showing video. But if you remember that goal, it's Nylander uh, basically recognizes that the Leafs have the puck a split second before two Ottawa defenders do. And recognizes that, oh, okay, if, if we make one breakout pass, then I, I can just beat everyone deep. So he, he kind of flies slightly early. Um, and the, the bet that he makes pays off. And is it Travis, Travis Dermott who makes the pass right to him? The middle. Yeah, so it's Travis Dermott passing right up the middle to Nylander on a breakaway. Um, Nylander scores. And this is like, a, you know, in the description that I just provided, it's a very kind of common construction of an NHL goal. Like, you see that not infrequently. Uh, but I think this is a nice example of a hockey play that becomes very impressive when you recognize how difficult some of... When you recognize how, how difficult hockey is as a sport. It's, it Like, there's a lot of subtle aspects of this play where, as someone who is a terrible skater myself, I'm like, oh my god, like, that, that looks so simple and every NHL player can basically do when you enter it to varying degrees of effectiveness, but it, it, it's su- surprisingly hard. So what I wanted to mention in particular is Nienander takes like two strides 
um, two forward strides. He's just about exiting uh, his blue line. And he's around the same depth as the Ottawa defender, maybe a little bit behind, but now he's going forward and they're having to start their transition to going backwards. Um, so he has a bit of a speed advantage. But the problem is he's going to have to turn backwards to receive that pass. So he pivots, uh, going from forwards to backwards to receive the pass, does a few hard cuts backwards while he's waiting for the pass, receives it from, from Dermot. Uh, the pass is like a little bit in his feet, but it's good enough. And then Nylander pivots again to go forward, and through this entire pivoting, he maintains or actually increases his separation from the Ottawa players, who only had to pivot once. Part of that is because he carried slightly more speed uh, heading into the pivot, right? He had those two strong strides um, leading out to his blue line, which the, the Senators' defenders did not have, and Nylander's a, a strong skater generally. But it's a great example of kind of the technique that you need to have as just like, as table stakes for an NHL player. Hockey's like such an interesting sport because you have to master this entirely different and alien method of movement, and then on top of that, you play a sport. Mm -hmm. Right, um, and the ability to very quickly go from forward backwards to forwards and do so so cleanly to maintain your speed through all throughout all of that is, I think, quite impressive and something that you know hockey players at all varying levels can do. But it's kind of just a, it was a nice, very concrete example of how good NHL players are. Yeah, absolutely. Pass reception in general, I think, is an underrated skill because it's subtle. People think, you know, if the pass comes to you, you should get it. And The NHL games also make, like, make this seem a lot more trivial than it is. Yeah, because it's routine for all of these guys to do that at a very high percentage of success. But the pass reception here, it wasn't just, you know, could he get the puck and get in front of it and then go with it. It's could he do it well building that separation that leads to the breakaway that leads to the goal. Because he gets in alone on Matt Murray, and he's already pretty much separated from them. Like, they aren't in the position to really impair him. And it's just, it's incredible that he's able to do that, because the difference between that goal, where he kind of just clowns the sense, and a play that's, dangerous but he doesn't really get a great shot out of it and we say oh darn is all in that pivot is all in that ability mm -hmm. to receive it while moving while keeping momentum um it, it was your idea to discuss this but the more i looked at it i was like isn't this just beautiful <laughs> yeah no and it, it's i i really like the, the point you make about kind of the difference between that and a partial break it, it's very large in terms of kind of the the goal probability mm -hmm. Right, we we see a lot of partial breaks, which are exciting as fans. But then you're like, oh, he he had a hard time getting the shot off there because the defender was just right on his hip and he couldn't, you know, it was limiting his his options and maybe he had to think more about how to protect the puck instead of where he's going. Um, so being able to turn this into a breakaway is an important skill, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I'm as I said, like, uh, any good hockey player can do what Nylander does there in a vacuum. But doing it at game speed in a game environment when NHL players are chasing you is another thing. Right. Right. And yeah. if you have a worse skating player, like David Clarkson doesn't make that play, right? To take an example of an NHL player who has significantly below average skating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's easy to forget sometimes that when you watch the NHL, you are looking at the end output of a process 
where a whole lot of good players played together and the very best of them moved up. And all those guys played together and the very best of them moved up. And that happened time after time until you got to the top of the pyramid. And at each step, the separation between the very best players and the guys who were just good at the level they're at is literally split sections in skating, in decision-making, in ability to react and read. Um, and so you, you end up at a play like this where just the ability to do all those things smoothly and in sequence gets him that extra second of separation against, notwithstanding these are the Ottawa Senators, some decent players. You know, guys who have also played their way up. Um, yeah, I mean, it stands out also because Nylander really is a great skater. Um, mm-hmm. You know, arguably the best on the team. Now, I mean, well, depending on how you want to measure it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say he he is like the. Mm. This is we see this a lot about Nylander. Mm-hmm. He, I think his skating has like, it's like the most complete of anyone on our team. It's a good way I of think putting it. He's not individually the fastest in a straight line or like the most agile, but I think his combination of being like quite good at all of those things, at all of like the various facets of skating, yeah, is is certainly among the best on the team. If 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 not the absolute top. I mean, really, that's the whole William Nylander experience is that he's kind of what happens when you get a player who's like an 8 out of 10 at a lot of skills all put together at the NHL level. You know, he's he's not the best shooter, but he's a very good shooter. He's not maybe the best playmaker, but he's a very good playmaker. And it, it coalesces into a hell of a player. So, yeah. Mm. Anyway, th- that was a lot of fun. This was just... I wish the Leafs would just win 6 nothing more often. I Personally, I it think would, they should do that. It would make our lives just a whole <laughs> lot easier if they, if they did so. Um, mm. In terms of other things worth discussing from this game, I, so we didn't get to see Jake Musson. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, I think, still like coming out of protocol, uh, right? Yeah, so, I mean, or something, something to that effect? We'll see. I, I'm really hopeful. Like, he needs some time. I think, as much as anything, just to get back to, to where he wants to be. And maybe I'm yeah. being optimistic in hoping this can be solved with time. But um, we've said it before, but really, the main concern on this team right now is that the Muzzin-Hall pairing has fallen apart. Yeah, And it, it's been an issue, despite a lot of other things working quite well. Jack Campbell has been terrific. Um, several of the supporting forwards, with one prominent exception, have worked out really well. Um, you know, Andre Kasha has been as good as could have been hoped for. Michael Bunting, same thing. So, really, if you're looking at this team going into the trade deadline, I think you're thinking, do we have to make a move for an upgrade on defense? Or can we? Can we materially upgrade and come up with something that's better than I hope Hall and or Liljegren can figure it out? Yes, and I mean, this is the other thing that's probably worth mentioning a little bit, is that um, in the absence of Muzzin, Rasmus Sandin played the second pair, Mm -hmm. not Travis Dermott. And, you know, I mean, I think Rasmus Sandin is going to be a second pair NHL defenseman, at least, I feel like. I feel confident in that statement. How good of one? It it would certainly be like a disappointment if he didn't at this point. From what we've seen of him thus far, it feels like his career peak should be being able to play competently as a second pairing guy yeah as as like that's a reasonable expectation at this point 
at this point, he's putting up these absolutely absurd fancy stats. And he's in that range now where it's like, okay, he's doing it against easier competition to some extent. You know, we've seen sheltered third paired guys. I think he will translate up because he's not one of those guys who has really striking flaws that are going to prevent him from translating. Not the best skater I've ever seen. And he's not huge. But neither is to, like, a fatal degree. And he's a well-rounded mm-hmm. player. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel pretty good about that. But that said, there's a difference between will be a competent second-pairing defenseman and can do what Jake Muzzin has done. Yes. A- and I, I don't anticipate Sandin being able to close that gap. So if the Leafs are in a go-for-it mode, which... God help me, they probably should be, um, notwithstanding recent years of pain. They probably do need to look at, can they reinforce that second pairing? Yeah. Um, um, and I guess Alex Biega played. I didn't have strong impressions of him. He, he seems like a fine eighth defenseman, which is what he is. Yeah. Right? I, I, as a rule, try not to get fussed about these guys. Yeah, all of these guys are, he's a guy. And so if push comes to shove... You'll throw him in and he'll be a guy. It's not something that you feel great about if you're trying to win, but it's also not something that you can really do a ton about. He's an eighth defenseman. He's going to be, he's not going to be that great. You know, he has to clear. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) exactly. It's the same thing with the, with the, with the goal, with goaltenders, right? With third goaltenders. Everyone's mad that the third goaltender isn't better. It's like, well, then he wouldn't have passed through waivers because everyone needs goaltenders. The only way to have a good third goaltender is to have drafted a goalie that worked out. And I wish the Leafs had done that. But the truth is, goalies are kind of a crapshoot at the prospect stage. There's just not a lot of evidence that that many people are good at projecting them. So, you know. Now that said, we got a bunch of wins out of Joe Wall for a bit there, so who knows. Um, yeah, looking at this team something that we probably want to think about is the forward complementary group. We've talked about supporting forwards a lot. We have the core four on this team, and then we have players that we slot in around them. And against Ottawa, we saw what a lot of people argue is the best 12 forwards. Right, which notably did not include Nick Ritchie. Exactly. With Ilya Mikheyev back and, you know, when he scores two goals, everyone likes him a hell of a lot better all of a sudden. But, mm. uh, yeah, it didn't include Nick Ritchie. And now the question is, should it include Nick Ritchie? If it's not going to, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to keep him in the press box or what? Yeah, I mean, with Ritchie, like, we, we've, we've crapped on him a lot this year. It's worth pointing out he's not as bad as his numbers have shown this year. Like, for example, I, I'm sure, I think I saw one of these those, like, goals above replacement charts for, for release players. Uh, and Richie was at the very bottom. And it, it's worth mentioning that goals above replacement depends a lot about... Uh, Katya describes it partially derisively, but there's definitely an element of truth to it, as um, goals for percentage with additional steps. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's valid. Like there's a, because, you know, in a single-year basis, on a single-year basis... Um, it basically is trying to attribute who contributed to outscoring teams at five on five. So it, there's a huge amount of noise in it, right? There was the, um, 
one of Sidney Crosby in recent years, one of Sidney Crosby's like best years in terms of driving play and his own personal play, he had like an incredibly low goals above replacement because he got PDO'd. Exactly. Right? That can happen to Sidney Crosby. It can sure as hell happen to Nick Ritchie. Yeah, for goals above the place, so, replacement, if you want to look at, okay, is the puck going in when they're on the ice, then you're inevitably going to have stretches where it's the puck wasn't going in for this guy and goals above replacement thinks that he's crap because there yes. were no goals. And that's why it's very important with goals above replacement to like look at long-term samples as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that, so, you know, with, with Richie, he's, he is not as bad as those stats maybe make him him seem as of right now although you know he does bear some culpability for that you know for for example we got him in some degree because he we thought he could finish at like an averageish to slightly below average pace and he he is uh not done that at all right that's mm-hmm. that's something that's a little bit on him um but at the same time like it's hard to argue he is clearly better than a huge portion of the guys um a huge portion of the guys that we have throughout the rest of this roster's depth, and at two and a half million for this year and next, that that contract doesn't look amazing by any stretch. Mm-hmm. I was fine with Richie as a bet. I think he's better than this. He's better than one goal and seven assists in twenty-eight games. I think he's played so far. But mm-hmm. a lot of that with strong line mates. Yeah, like look, he did not produce to start the year at all. And he actually came on a little bit, just in the, in that respect, because he started racking up assists for a bit there. Um, Keith actually said, I think he's been playing better lately, and I agree with Keith on that, even if he was just mostly being nice. I think Richie looked better um, in what games were played in December than he did in the first couple months. But at the same time, for $2.5 million, you would like to get more from him. And this is a guy who is supposed to score... 10 to 15 goals as his value proposition. That's why he got two and a half million dollars and not one. Like, what's the difference between him and David Kampf, who does a whole lot of surprisingly very useful things? I guess not surprisingly. What I'm saying is I didn't think David Kampf was as good as he's turned out to be. But, like, David Kampf mm-hmm. does a ton of stuff, but he gets paid a million less a year because he doesn't score. Richie doesn't do many of those things, but he got paid two and a half million a year because supposedly he did. So if he's not scoring, that's just a big chunk of what he's there for gone. And so now there's yeah, a question. And, yeah. and also he hasn't been really useful on the power play. Like In some sense, this is like, this was an issue with the signing of, you know, Nick Richie can be useful on, on a power play, but who, who gives a shit because he's going to be on our PP too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not something to really you know, bet the house on. And, you know, the other thing is that Kyle Dubas made a series of bets. And we've talked about this before. You need to bet on complementary players to support your core when you are capped out or close to it. So you bet on Andre Kasha, David Kampf, Nick Ritchie, all of these players. Um, and I, you know, if Kyle Dubas were here to speak in his own defense, he could quite rightly say, hey, most of these have worked out. And the point of a bet is that there is downside risk. I'm not going to bat a thousand on these kind of signings because that's crazy. So where does that leave us with Nick Ritchie? Do we hope that he recaptures some of his production? Because the reality is he's, he's better than this, I think. Um, or is this now time to consider cutting bait? Because if you want to make those defense upgrades we've talked about, 
it would be helpful to have a bit of cap space to do them with. And Nick Ritchie suddenly looks like the guy who's making a lot of money and is expendable. Justin Hall is obviously sort of in the same situation, but he makes less money. And also probably not quite, like, who, who do you... Yeah, you have to say, okay, I'm so comfortable doing this that I'm turfing him entirely, so... Yeah. Yes, and, I mean, who who steps up? Loegren, do you play Dermot right side? Yeah. Uh, in, in the top four, it's it's tricky. The other thing is that you, there's always the what if somebody gets injured question, which at forward is not a huge thing. If somebody gets injured, you know, you, you promote pure ball and then you bump up, say, um, Alex Steves if you feel like it, but you can do it with any of several players. Kyle Clifford would probably be Yeah, there, there's, one. I mean, if you're really terrified, I mean, you, Joey Anderson can do a job. Mm-hmm. Nick Robertson can do a job. Yeah. Right, like there, there's, there's enough forwards that, yeah, unless unless you're missing one of the top four, mm-hmm. it, if you, yeah, everyone else is relatively replaceable. Maybe, maybe Kerfoot or Bunting are not, to the, uh, like they're kind of the, the middle in that we're probably a significantly better with them than without them. But it's still also still not impossible to replace them. Yeah, exactly. Whereas with defense, if you play a bad defenseman for the duration of a playoff series against a good team, that's a bit more of a daunting prospect. Like, we just talked about Alex Biega being the epitome of a guy. And the truth is, you can play several just-a-guys against the Ottawa Senators, and who cares? Because they're bad. But when you're staring down, and God help us, the Florida Panthers or the Tampa Bay Lightning or whoever else in a series, you're a little bit leerier of that prospect, I think. Yes, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, going forward, but the question is, do you do you want to do you think we can get anything for Nick Ritchie right now? If I'm another team's GM, do am, am I that excited by Nick Ritchie for two point five million this year and next? I feel like I'm not. No, and maybe what gets me is okay. Let's start with a question: Does Nick Ritchie clear waivers right now? If you waive him, does he get claimed? He might, but I, I can see him. I can see him passing through as well. I am genuinely not sure because, look, if he's producing less than a point every three games and only one goal for the first third of the season, that's not worth it for a player of his type at two and a half million. But he's the kind of player that GMs have historic, historically liked, and I'm sure someone will remember that he not too long ago, was a 15-goal guy. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's a borderline call. And, but that's sort of the baseline I'm setting here, because if we're not sure Nick Ritchie even clears waivers... Then, yeah, there's no, there's no trading y- at that You know, point. A, a, what are we getting here? Like a seventh-round pick at, at most? Or are we taking something back, which almost defeats the purpose, and then maybe you say, let's see if he can recapture his form a bit before we have this conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do well, think that well, I would cycle Richie back in or I would just wait for someone to be absent because that's going to happen yeah but if we cycle him back in we're going to have to we're going to have to wave someone don't we I'm no longer tremendously confident in my ability to say what we can and can't do about the roster yeah the it's situation. well <laughs> I, I feel like I had a handle on this at some point and then I've gotten both less familiar with the precise nature of, of the Leafs, um, I guess, 
abilities and, and the players and their constraints. But then also COVID kind of yeah. <laughs> feels like it complicates this to some extent well, uh, as well because of the protocols. Yeah, um, I mean, for one thing, like they would have to waive him to send him anywhere is the big thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like keeping him around does have some cost. There's some strain on your roster. It's some strain on your cap. Um, so is it more worth it to just keep him for whatever play you're going to get out of him going forward, or at least for the increase in his trade value? Or is it time to cut bait? I think, you know, there are people who are, I would say, willing to let Nick Ritchie go. Certainly online, they say, you know, I've seen enough. I don't think he's a very good player, and that's that. Mm -hmm. And he has failed to take what should have been one of the best opportunities in the NHL. Like, the Leafs had him earmarked for first-line left wing, and he bobbled yeah. in favor of Michael Bunting. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think at this point, I would still be keeping him. I would certainly say, hey, <laughs> does anyone want to send me a meaningful draft pick for Nick Ritchie? But when I get back the response to that, which is LOL, uh, I probably just sort of sit on my hands a little bit longer. Yeah, I, I, I think no one's going to be super excited to get Richie off our off our hands. And then certainly like paying an asset or, or anything like that just feels like setting on a low. Yeah. Right. Like, he, he, he's not his value isn't getting his value. I feel like is at a complete nadir because also, you know, the longer we go, like he gets closer to expert <laughs> effectively. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, right? Is even if you say, okay, this is a guy who would clear waivers now, he hasn't got much value. It's like, well, it can't really get too much worse than that. Like you can get to guaranteed to clear waivers, I guess, or something. But as you say, as that approaches expiry, maybe it gets more palatable. So yeah, I think he'll be around longer. I, I do actually feel for the guy because... You know, this season has obviously not gone anything like he would have wanted, and he is getting unlucky. Um, mm -hmm. That that one in the goals column is a function of bad luck as much as anything. I'm not saying he's been great, but, like, how many goals do you have to add to that total um, before this conversation looks different? Maybe five? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not inconceivable to me that if he plays the rest of the year, he could, you know, drag his way back up to double digits. So, yeah, uh, it's a tricky thing. Um, his ostensible replacement is Ilya Mikheyev, who, as we just mentioned, has stormed back with two goals. And people are hoping new year, new Ilya Mikheyev. I'm hoping this, but we were going to talk about that. Yeah, before we do, just yeah. it, this is like, news as we are. Um, recording, uh, Keith, Sheldon Keefe said that um, Austin Matthews and Dean Chinua, Leafs assistant coach, tested positive on a, on a rapid test uh, today and are awaiting the results of a PCR test. So, um, okay. yes, this is, I mean, well, Nick Ritchie, you're back in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> so that segment is good. Um, um, yeah, okay, so... Hopefully that uh, that works out as well as possible as the the league and the world continue to limp through COVID outbreaks. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, you're you're. <laughs> we wanted to talk about um, as you said. Oh, jeez, what was the segue you just Ilya made? Mikheyev. Oh my god, like, Ilya Mikheyev. Yes, yes. So this is this is like a, a preemptive bad take, right? Because <laughs> we see this all the time, yeah. and it's always this thing of you know 
depth player has a good game or good set of games. And everyone's like, man, if depth player can just get more consistent, they'd really be something. And it's like, you're what you're saying is if depth player played better more, they would be a better player. Which is very true, but also an absolutely fucking useless thing to say. Okay, this is the thing, and this is one of the most useful lessons from stats that I think everyone should internalize. Um, because it runs clean into a very popular hockey cliche, which is that we need to be more consistent, as you've just said. It's, the thing is, is that no one is perfectly consistent. Sometimes they just are better than average because there's normal variation in all realms of human activity. Some days you feel good. You eat your Wheaties and they hit just right. You got enough sleep last night instead of being woken up by a siren at 3 in the morning. The puck went in for you. All of these things. Sometimes it just works out. For Ilya Mikheyev, that game against the Ottawa Senators was a sometimes it just works out game. And so it would be nice if that was his just permanent way of living. But it's probably not going to be. And there's some hope people are saying, okay... He had that awful wrist cut um, that kept him out for a long time, came back, did not produce at the same rate before. Um, or I should correct that. Um, people perceived that he basically stopped producing, but our, our own catch it basically established saying, okay, not really. Like he came in very hot at the very start of his NHL tenure, but there's not much evidence that the wrist injury actually affected what we should expect expect from him in terms of shooting percentage um well especially if you look at his pre-nhl career he wasn't he wasn't you know this isn't um kirill kaprizov leading the khl in scoring yeah like his uh, khl career high was 23 goals in 62 games which you know nothing wrong with that but it's also like th this guy is not a 30 goal man barring an insane shooting heater or anything like that so you know, I think the reality is that Ilya Mikheyev is a useful player because he does a lot of things well. Um, but I can't help noticing it's like, okay, him scoring on one breakaway one time, unfortunately, is not going to be enough for me to believe he'll score on all of them now. <laughs> or even on this, a normal this applies, number. Yeah. This applies to teams, too, yeah. by the way. And I... I... I don't know if... You, you remember the the start of the 17-18 the season? The Leafs for like nine games, just blitzed teams. Mm -hmm. um, they had absurd shot numbers, and that w and really, it you know this is part of where October Freddy was spawned. Um, really bad goaltending mm -hmm. as well. And but they were mostly winning these games, from what I remember. At, but they were like complete, you know, fire wagon hockey games uh, in the sense of lots of goals. But the least shot numbers were were really really good. And this is where Mike Babcock had the kind of infamous "It's fun, but it's dumb" comment. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there was kind of a, 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 so as the season progressed, the Leafs shot numbers came down and there was this idea that Babcock was coaching the Leafs out of that fire wagon offensive style to worse results. Mm -hmm. And it was similarly, it, it was based on this idea of like, he wanted the team to be more consistent and less, uh, and um, what's it, like less, I guess, high variance or, or whatever that, that was the predominant you know point of discussion but then when you looked into it it wasn't actually it didn't actually hold water um what 
actually happened is that for the first, I don't know, two weeks of the season, the Leafs' defense was like ridiculously good, actually, by their standards uh, in terms of preventing shots and preventing expected goals. And their offense was what it usually was. It was like a crazy hot offense because the Leafs were just a good offense generally. And they were hot in terms of scoring goals, like shooting above expected, and in terms of letting in goals, teams shot above expected on them. And as the season progressed, the Leafs' offense stayed the same and their defense got worse, which, which obviously kind of runs, runs counter to the idea of, you know, the, the coaching staff saying, oh, we need to slow things down. It, it, it was actually kind of the opposite. And what was happening, really, is that people were getting anchored by this, like, initial expectation of this, these two weeks are what the Leafs actually represent and they need to get back to that and be more consistent relative to that. But that actually could just represent some deviation from what they're actually doing or what their actual kind of quote-unquote true talent is mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's the same with players right if a random player has a few good games it doesn't necessarily you know sometimes it can portend a, a change in the underlying like distribution of what sort of games we expect for that player but it doesn't it doesn't always right and this is this is also this is not just true with like Death players. Like, this is true with William Melander too. He had a really hot start to the year, and everyone's like, "Oh, maybe this is the year he gets point per game," and then he he slowed down because Melander isn't a point per game guy. Yeah, well, he's flirting with it still, but yeah, he's flirting with yeah. it. But like, it's it's you know, there, there's this tendency to always to to view results, especially at the start of a year, mm-hmm. as somehow very reflective of what the actual quote-unquote like level of play from that player or that team should be and then you know subsequent deviations from that are seen as deviations from that normal Mm -hmm. but there's no particular reason why the first x games of a season or first x games of after a break are any more of a true indicator of ability than the 10th game yeah to be honest we probably ought to expect that the first game after anything weird would be a little bit less predictive than yeah. once you get into the swing of things. More prosaically, like, look, this is a game against Matt Murray. And I don't know mm. what happened to Matt Murray. Um, I didn't think he was like this. And then he has been like this for a while now. And he's just not a very good goalie. So that probably helps everyone's finishing percentage a little bit. You know, it's not to be a huge downer here. It's just when we have these conversations about consistency, I keep thinking if you're, you know, if I have a way I can play as a 99th percentile outcome, expecting me to do that all the time is as dumb as expecting me to grow wings, basically. Like, I'm just not Mm -hmm. going to be able to be the absolute best version of myself that often. And this runs into hockey psychology, where what you want to do is talk yourself into being the best possible player you can be as often as you possibly can. So you have to believe that whatever you've done on your best day is always within reach. But we just know that that's not always the case. There are going to be ups and downs. Um, This is uh, a bit further afield from Ilya Mikheyev himself, but... You know, I do think that with getting as many chances as he gets and finishing on them as rarely as he does, it really makes him stand out in people's minds. And it really uh, maybe makes people forget that he is actually kind of a useful player in other respects. So, yeah, just trying to keep some perspective on him. 
Now, when he goes on a shooting heater, which he's now going to because of us, and scores 25 goals the rest of the year, you are welcome. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think I think that's a that's a good preemptive preemptive bad take. So if you listen to this pod and you make that take, we're gonna we're gonna be very disappointed in you. Yeah, like not mad, but disappointed. Disappointed. Yeah, we we expect better of you. <laughs> we just want you to be the best person you can be. Uh, hmm. we, 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 we don't want, there's this, uh, isn't there, isn't there this tweet where it's, uh, it's like, if, if you respond to something that I retweet and you insist on including me in your reply, please do not embarrass me. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I, I did use that on one guy one time for being a dickhead on Twitter. Like, it felt like a jerk, but on the other hand, it's like, come on, man. Like I'm getting notification after notification of you just acting like a total douchebag. My replies. Why are you? Why are you treating people like this? So exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think that's pretty much all we wanted to cover. Hopefully, the the games this week. Well, I say hopefully these games are going to go through. Hope, hopefully, it's safe for these yeah. games to go through because, like, I guess fundamentally, <laughs> the game shouldn't go through if it's not going to be safe. Yeah, like um, I, I I want this to be over. You know, I'll indulge like one comment on COVID. I don't know on a lot of this stuff. My answer to like, what should we do is, I don't know. I, like, I just hope that we can, you know, manage this in a way that preserves hospital capacity and lets us do things, but also doesn't increase the risk of something crazy. And I'm sort of resigned to what smarter people tell me. So I'm just going to say, I hope that these games can happen safely and then that they do happen. <laughs> that's useless, but that's all I got. So, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, with, on that cheery note, we will <laughs> finish up the pod. Thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuldeman's work at PetchPanPuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RB and AT Fuldeman. Uh, we'll see you soon.